0: Turn in your Bible, turn your Bible on, whatever you need to do. Philippians chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Philippians chapter 4. You'll notice we're skipping ahead a few verses. If you were with us last week, we ended last week um, in the end of chapter 3. We're going to jump down to verse 10 of chapter 4 today and skip those first nine verses because a few months back when we did our series, Asking for a Friend, we spent about four weeks on mental health and uh, that topic, and we covered very thoroughly the first nine verses of Philippians 4, and so I didn't want to be redundant this morning, and so we're going to jump down to verse 10. You're welcome to go back on our YouTube or podcast and listen to those if you want to, to, to learn more about that passage. Um, let me update you real quick, too. This is exciting. Uh, not only is baptism exciting, that's like the greatest thing ever, but this past week, this past Thursday, we had our very first appointment ever at the Finding Hope Center, and so we've helped families through that. Yeah, you can clap for that. Um, my sleeve is wet, and this is annoying. <laughs> anyways, we have helped several families through the Finding Hope Center already, but this was the first family that actually came through our facility, and we got to walk through and help and help them on that journey and process. And I was the guinea pig, me and my wife Liz, to just kind of see how things were going to flow. I'm telling you all, it was awesome. One of the best parts for me, it gave the little boy some army men. Again, probably cost a dollar, but to him it was Awesome. We came, made our way around, we came to the mom's room, and in the mom's rooms we have diapers, wipes, all that kind of good stuff. But we have a section that's just cereal, cereal boxes, Cocoa Puffs, Lucky Charms, uh, you name it, it's there, Fruity Pebbles. And as we would get to that section, I asked that little boy, I so, said, do you like cereal? Yeah. I said, what's your favorite? Cocoa Puffs. I said, buddy, look right there, we got Cocoa Puffs. Do you want them? Yes, and he was just stoked out of his mind. It probably cost somebody in our church a buck and a quarter, but to that little boy, you made as weak. So that stuff matters. And it's going to be exciting to see how Jesus continues to use the Finding Hope Center as we just bring hope into people's lives and uh, share the gospel with people. So Philippians chapter 4, uh, we're in week 21 of the book of Philippians. Next week, we'll be ending this book out. And so a 22-week journey through the book of Philippians. Hope this has encouraged you. But in Philippians chapter 4, if you'll stand with me in honor of reading God's word, we're going to read verses 10 through 14. As Paul writes again to the church in Philippi, here's what he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with a little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through Jesus who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. Let's pray. Father, thanks again for your word, for the privilege we have to gather as your church in your house. We've got to celebrate Jesus. And Father, we pray now as we walk through what may be a familiar passage to some of us, that you would breathe fresh life into this today. God, that you would speak to us very clearly, soften our hearts to hear from you, Jesus. And would you give us the hands and feet that we need to live out these truths this week, wherever you send us as missionaries. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, curiosity got the best of me this week, and I started doing some research centering around this one question. Are Americans happy? And it's a pretty simple question. Are Americans happy? happy, and I expected, because most of us, we, everybody's pursuing the American dream in some capacity, we wanna get better, we wanna do more, we wanna do more things, I expected to find better statistics than what I actually did find, and honestly, what I found was heartbreaking. So what I learned was historically, since 1972, it's pretty common each year for some organization, some university to do a study centering around that question, are Americans happy? And traditionally, what they found is when they ask that question, they do large swaths of surveys, ask several people. Traditionally, they found that most of the time, 29% of people would indicate that they are happy. If we wanted to round that out for us today, we could see one in three Americans would confidently say, based on my current life situation, I am happy. And then 2020 hit. And last year, they conducted that exact same survey like they did every single year. A different organization, a university conducted the survey, asked the question, large group of people, are Americans happy? Are you happy? And it went from nearly 29% of people, historical average saying they were happy, one in three, that in the middle of 2020, last year, that only one in seven Americans indicated that they were happy. It was about 14% of Americans said, yeah, I'm happy. It's pretty sad if you think about it. It's nearly dropped in half. But why does that matter to us today? And I think the answer is found here in Philippians 4. Because I'd make the argument today that the reason that our happiness is declining in our nation is because the journey towards happiness is a moving target for all of us. Happiness is not a constant that we can really cling to. Because happiness is always based on the positive nature of our circumstances. If things in my life are positive, then I'm happy. But if things in my life turn negative, or if my positive is disturbed or removed, happiness fades. And what Paul points us here today in Philippians 4 is the opportunity that we have as Christians to point people towards a different target. To move away from always pursuing this idea of happiness and instead making our target contentment. Contentment is not happiness, contentment is significantly better, and it's rooted and grounded in the hope that we have in Jesus. So what is contentment? If you're a note taker, you can write this down. If not, hopefully you'll remember it. Contentment is finding satisfaction in my relationship with Jesus despite my circumstances. It's the ability that you and I have, if our hope is grounded in Christ, Jesus resides in me, the Spirit of God dwells inside of me, to be completely satisfied in Christ in the midst of my positive life circumstances and my negative life circumstances. Life may be good, it may be bad, but Jesus and I are okay, therefore that's enough for me. And we have the opportunity, especially now in a world that is trembling and shaking and insecure, to point people to this different target that's found in Christ known as contentment. And that's where Paul leads us into today. Paul's really taking this opportunity as he's writing the church in Philippi to help them understand this target of contentment, to help them understand what it means to move towards contentment each day as a christ follower. So let's look at these five verses, starting in verse 10, and let's see what Jesus has for us as we understand contentment. First is this, Paul talks about a controllable response. A controllable response, starting in verse 10, what's he say? I rejoiced greatly, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, because once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, you were concerned about me, but you lacked the opportunity to show it. And I don't say this out of need, Paul says, for I've learned to be content. There's our word. In whatever circumstances, I find myself. Let's take a quick walk back. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2, first part of verse 10. Paul is really pointing us back here to Philippians chapter 2 here in verse 10 of Philippians chapter 4. If you were with us a few months back in Philippians chapter 2, starting verse 19, I'm sorry, starting verse 19, we were introduced to to two characters, two historical figures, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And the one that Paul's pointing us to here now is Epaphroditus. If you remember Epaphroditus, he was only talked about in verses 25 through 30 of Philippians chapter 2. And the entirety of the scriptures, a man as incredible as Epaphroditus was, only gets airtime on six verses that Paul writes to the church in Philippi. But Epaphroditus was a pretty special guy. If you remember, he was sent by the church in Philippi, The church in Philippi sent Epaphroditus to Rome, where Paul was on house arrest now, and he was going to be tried uh, for crimes that he had supposedly committed. And the church in Philippi sent Epaphroditus with two objectives. Objective number one was was he was to bring this offering from the Philippian church to Paul to make sure Paul's needs were met monetarily. The second thing that Epaphroditus was to do was to go and then minister to the needs of Paul as long as Paul needed him, to just be there for Paul, do whatever Paul needed to do, run errands, pick up his groceries, spend time with him, have conversation, whatever it looked like, that was the role of Epaphroditus. And if you look back at Philippians chapter 1, we talked about Philippians 1, I think it was like verse 5 or verse 6, that Paul had helped found the church in Philippi And so there was this really tight-knit relationship that he had with them. He loved this church. Acts chapter 16, he helped start this church. He loved them so much. But because of the distance between Rome and Philippi, several hundred miles, the Philippians didn't have much opportunity to minister to Paul because he was so far away. So they sent Epaphroditus on their behalf. Now look at what Paul says in Philippians 1.10. He says, you were concerned about me. They they loved each other dearly. Philippi and Paul had a really close relationship. But you what? Lacked the opportunity to show it. He's commending them. Paul says, I'm I'm thankful that you're renewing your care for me, that you're making an effort to show me how much you love me. That's kind of interesting that word uh, um, um, renewing your care is a phrase in the Greek that means to bloom again. It's this picture of a dark winter, but the spring flowers are blooming up out of the dark ground. It's this idea of Paul's like, I'm on house arrest. Life's not the greatest, but you sent Epaphroditus to me to minister to my needs. He's such an encouragement to me. But then I love how Paul transitions in verse 11. Look at that with me again. Now, Paul says, thanks for sending Epaphroditus. Thanks for sending the offering. But verse 11 says, I don't say this out of need. While Paul was appreciative of the support of the Philippian church, he's telling them, as much as I'm thankful that you sent it, um, it wasn't necessary. He wasn't trying to guilt them into sending any more money. Paul Paul didn't say, hey, man, uh, if y'all got another missionary that you want to send with a sack of cash, like, that would be fine. Go ahead. I'll take it. That's not what Paul does here. He says, no, no, no. I appreciate the gift, but it wasn't necessary for me. And then he teaches them about contentment because this kind of bucks against everything that these people probably understood they probably thought well paul needs more we need to send more he, he, he desperately needs it. and paul says no, no no i've learned the secret of contentment i know how to do with a lot and a little and let me teach you look at verse 11 i want to give you a couple principles here and then we're going to jump to the next one principle number one is this um, contentment is learned this is a really important principle if you're a note taker write this down contentment is learned It's not something that you just do. It's something that as a Jesus follower, you have to learn. It's a virtue for the follower of Jesus that takes root in our hearts as we get more and more satisfied with Christ. As I learn to trust Jesus more, my contentment is gonna grow deeper. The only way I could think about for me to understand it this week, um, I was thinking about when I taught my oldest daughter Sophia how to ride a bike. It's the worst, I don't recommend it ever. I remember being in our cul-de-sac at our previous home and she had been riding with training wheels forever. And I was like, all right, baby, it's time to learn to ride without training wheels. You're old enough now. We need to do this. So we put the helmet on and took the training wheels off. And you parents, you've probably all done this before. What do you do? You hold onto the back of the seat and you hold onto the one handlebar. And you go running down the street and you get about 10 feet and you're winded, right? But you can't let your kids see you out of breath. So you got to run down the street, pushing your kid and you're, you're going, going, going. And I, I remember so vividly, the words she kept saying was, don't let go, don't let go. I'm going to die. A little dramatic, Sophia, chill out. But what do we say? We're holding them and they're screaming all those things. This is the worst. I don't want to do this. I'm going to die. Trust me. Just trust me. I'm not going to let you get hurt. Just trust me. And over the span of a few days, it didn't take root the very first day. But as Sophia learned to trust me more and more in the midst of that process, you know what happened? She learned how to ride a bike. Because she trusted me in the midst of a circumstance, she didn't fully understand. How do I learn contentment as a Jesus follower? It's developing habits and learning habits like on the good days that I acknowledge the goodness of Jesus. That I completely trust and depend on Jesus when things are awesome. Father, thank you for today. And then I do the same thing when things aren't awesome. When life is tough and things fall apart around me, I remind my heart that my God is still good. I remind my soul to trust him when things don't seem good. That's how you learn to live content. You choose to fix your hope on Jesus and let contentment take root in your heart. My situation may be good or it may be difficult, but Jesus's character does not change. Here's a second principle from verse 11 that's important. Contentment is not distance from life, but closeness to Jesus. It's not distance from life, but closeness to Jesus. And maybe this is just me, but when I was reflecting on contentment this week, one thing I've been guilty of, and maybe this is a a male thing, I'm not sure, is sometimes I've confused distancing myself from situations as actually being content. Right, when when something gets tough around me where I just like check out of the situation, life's crashing down around me and I'm like, you know what, I don't even care anymore. And you just throw your hands up and you move on. I don't even care. That's not contentment. But I I think often I I allow myself to think that where I just become this like stoic, disengaged, passionless shell of a life and I'm like, I'm good and I don't care what's going on around me. That's not contentment. uh, A few weeks ago, I told you all, uh, when my basement just a few months ago flooded with sewer water. If you weren't here for that, ask me the story. It's wonderful. Basement flooded with sewer water. It was the worst. It was terrible. We got it all cleaned up. Uh, the company came in, restored everything, and we thought we were good. Until like a week later. I didn't tell you this part. A week later, we had a heavy rain. I went down into my basement. Guess what happened? Basement flooded again three times, four months. It was great. Be my friend. And I was so frustrated in the moment. My wife can tell you this. Like we had just, we had a basement flood and then we had the sewer flood and all this in a span of a few months. And then you get the water literally pouring down from the corner of my basement. It was like a waterfall in my basement. The kids thought it was awesome. I didn't. And you see this. And I remember walking down there, the carpet that was left of it, that wasn't soaked in sewer water, was now soaked in this outdoor water. And you know what I did? I looked at it yep, that's wet and I don't care. (laughs) And I went upstairs and I watched a movie in total peace (laughs) because I completely checked out. I became just this passionless. I was done and I didn't care. That's not contentment. And I think culturally we've confused that with contentment. You see, what's interesting, that's actually a mindset that was being um, peddled by these Stoic philosophers that existed during the time that Paul was writing this. These Stoic philosophers kind of, they taught this idea that if you stopped caring about little things and then progressively stopped caring about big things, that in general you would just stop caring and then you would achieve contentment. And and Paul just kind of bucks against that. Paul says contentment is not distance from life and not caring. Instead, contentment is found when we learn to walk through the muck of life with Jesus. I'm reminded of Psalm 23. We studied this in early 2020. Remember this verse, Psalm 23:4, When David said, even when I go through the darkest valley, I don't fear danger, for you are what? With me. As I'm journeying through that dark valley, I don't fear because Jesus is with me. And His rod and His staff, that's the Word and the Spirit, they, they comfort me. I can go through the dark valley because I have somebody accompanying me through it. I don't have to disengage from it because I have Jesus with me. So contentment, if we really want to understand this, says despite what's going on around me, I choose peace because of who is with me. Do you see why Christians are the only one that can have this target? Christ with me allows me to go through the dark valley. I don't have to journey alone. I don't have to be, become this stoic, passionless, lifeless shell. Why? Because I have Jesus with me. I can't control what's going on around me, but I got Jesus, so I'm good. It's choosing to think and live differently. Here's our, our third principle from verse 11. Contentment is the acknowledgement that I'm not in control. The acknowledgement that I'm not in control. I, I read Paul's, what's going on here, and I thought to myself, only Paul could be changed to a, chained to a 265 pound Roman guard and write, yeah, I'm content. It's like being chained to like your grandfather in a dungeon, We're like, yeah, this is awesome. And you're eating stale bread and a cup of water. This is great, but only Paul could do that. But why could he do it? Because he knew God was in control. And that is one of the hardest principles for Christians to grasp today that God is sovereign over all things. Yeah, Aaron, but you don't know about this. I do. And the Bible still says it's true. God is in control. Paul said in Philippians 1, verse 6, that God is always doing things around us and in us. And he's inviting us into the story he's writing. God is in control. Contentment's found when I acknowledge and believe that. That God is in control. I'm not. It makes the journey with Jesus so much better. Now let's go to verse twelve. Look at what Paul says in verse twelve as he talks about now uncontrollable circumstances. Verse twelve, he says, "I know how to make do with a little." That's uh, your Bible might say, "I know how to make do with humble means." I know how to make do with a lot, any and all circumstances. I know the secret, whether I'm well fed or in, well fed or hungry, abundance or in need. If Paul could speak from experience, it's what he's doing here. Paul Paul was the the master of what abundance and nothing meant. The master of hungry and well-fed. He's not just saying, all right, Philippians, be content. Paul can point you back to stories and seasons where he walked through this stuff. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 11. It'll be on our screen. I love this because he gives this list to the Corinthian church as he writes the second letter. Listen to what he says to him. Five times. I've received 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. That's being beaten with a a, a leather strap. 39 times. Hit 39 times. That counts as as one beating. Three times I was beaten with rods. If your mom ever beat you with a switch, you know this this isn't fun. Three times with rods. Once I received a stoning. If you remember, uh, I can't remember the city, but Paul was taken out to the city gate. If you don't know what stoning is, literally they would just take large rocks and hurl them at you until you were dead. You were literally crushed. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, robbers, my own people, the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers. Hear the list here? Toil, hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, no food. I was cold. I didn't have clothing. And then he adds this little phrase here in verse 28, not to mention all the other things. Step back and you're like, are you kidding me? I had an ingrown toenail. I'm like, Paul, what's going on here? And then he, then he puts this like cap on it. And this is so significant. He says, then there's the daily pressure on me of my concern for all the churches. Remember, Paul was a church planter. He was an apostle. So he started all these congregations that he loved. And then he would have to leave them and not revisit them for several years. And so he starts these churches and he's like, it just bears down on me. Because I don't know what's going on there all the time. I don't know who's infiltrated. I don't know what kind of doctrine they're teaching. I don't know what's going on. And it just bears on my soul. You see, if anybody understood uncontrollable circumstances, it was Paul. He reminds us that here in chapter 4. He's like, I I know what humble means are. I've had a lot. He was probably pointing back to when he was a Pharisee. I've had a lot. Now i got nothing. He knows what it's like to be cold and to be warm. He knows what it's like to have shelter and not have shelter. He knows what it's like to have a lot and to have a little. But he says, "I, I can be content. If we took a survey in this room right now, I'm sure all of us are on one side of that spectrum right now. The abundance or need, you know, we're all somewhere. But in verse 13, he points us to this secret. And this is so cliche and so profound. What's the secret of contentment? We've said it a hundred times. It's Jesus. Well, Aaron, I know that. I don't think we do. Jesus is the secret of contentment. When you have a fixed hope and a fixed trust and a fixed dependence upon Jesus, the ups and downs of life no longer shake you. Jesus is the secret. He's the stability in the chaos. He's the anchor in the waves. He's our security in the turbulence. Now, we're going to talk about verse 13 a little bit more in just a moment. But I want to draw a principle out here that is so important. And I would encourage you, even if you don't take notes, put this in your phone and, and chew on this the rest of the week. When circumstances change, God doesn't. We alluded to that a few minutes ago, but I really want to hone in on this. When circumstances change, our God doesn't. And we have a lie that's being peddled in our culture today. Let's just go ahead and call it out. That I believe is one of the greatest enemies to contentment. And here's the lie, and it ties back to that phrase I just said. The lie is this, that my circumstances are a direct reflection of God's feelings and attitude toward me as a Jesus follower. We have a lie being petted by many, many churches, many, many false teachers right now, that the circumstances I experience are a direct reflection of God's view towards me as a Jesus follower. Now, number one, it's not true. Let me show you how this plays out. Oh my gosh, this fires me up. People will say, if my bank account is full, there's food on my table, I have minimal stress, and overall life is good, then God must be happy with me and I'm blessed. Sounds good. Not true. Then we'll do the opposite of that. If my bank account is low, food is scarce, stress is high, and life is tough, then something must be wrong. God must be upset with me. Sounds good. It's not true. Because if God's blessing on your life and God's, let's call it, favor towards you, that's kind of a buzzword in Christian circles, was only manifested through your health and your wealth and the amount of food on your table and the amount of stress that you endure, then we got a lot of explaining to do to some of our brothers and sisters that live on a lot less than we do and love Jesus a lot more than we do. I've sat on dirt floors, I've been in tents, I've been in the middle of lakes with people that have nothing, and I'm going to tell you something, they're more blessed by God than we are. They don't question God's goodness in the midst of their tough circumstances, instead they've learned to be content. Anything extra that we experience, we we are a blessed people, I am not denying that. But do you know what we call that? Grace. It's sovereign grace given to us and we're just thankful for it. But if God takes it all away, and you still don't, you question the goodness of God, if he removes it all from us, I'd question whether or not we really understand Jesus. God's blessing is not tied to your circumstances. And if we allow that lie to be peddled into our hearts, you're going to constantly question God's goodness. God does not change even though our circumstances do. And Paul reminds us of that. Instead, the Bible says in Ephesians 2.6 that because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross on my behalf, that God is forever satisfied with me. That's incredible. His view towards me will never change for all of eternity. So I fix my hope on that and my trust on that And my heart on that, and I say, you know what? Life may fall apart around me, but me and Jesus are fixed together because of what he did on the cross for me. Because of Jesus, God is satisfied with me forever, even if my circumstances may change. You see, contentment. Paul says, I'm in a Roman cell, chained to a Roman guard, and I got nothing, but I got Jesus. I'm good. I'm content. Point number three, and we're almost done. Contentment secret. Look what he says. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There's our secret of contentment again. That's that fixed hope on Jesus. But verse 13 only makes sense in the context of the rest of the chapter. Because here's what's interesting. Often we take that phrase of verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I will go scale this mountain. <laughs> Stop it. Right? I can bench press 1,000 pounds. No, you can't. You weigh 130. You will die. <laughs> we do that all the time. You see the, the... Again, you all know I'm not into sports, but you see different football players and basketball players, like Philippians 4.13, under their eyes. We're going to win the Super Bowl because we wrote Philippians 4.13 on our face. Stop. That's not what this is about. This verse only makes sense in the context of everything else Paul said. And what did Paul say? What's the secret of contentment? Jesus so when I can't be content, when life is falling apart around me, what do I do? I lean on Jesus. That's what this verse means. It means when life has taken me to the end of my rope, I lean on Jesus. And he's where I find my strength to walk out contentment. Life's falling apart. Romans 8, 11, what's it say? The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. You have access, friends. Again, we don't like to talk about this in Baptist churches. You have access to resurrection power in the middle of your chest. When life is spiraling out of control, the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. I'm reminded of Galatians chapter 2.20. Life's falling apart. What do we tell ourselves? I've been crucified with Christ. Aaron no longer lives, but what happens? Jesus lives in me. This life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and He gave Himself for me. When I reach those times where contentment is hard, i remind myself that Jesus is in me, and that's where I find my strength. Let me give you one more story. You can close your Bibles if you want. I read this this week. I thought this was so good. And it really illustrates contentment in a way that I hadn't seen it before. And the stories of a king that was ruling over this kingdom, and he sent a decree out to the whole world. He said, here's what I'm looking for. I need all the artists in my kingdom to paint me a picture of contentment and peace. He gave him about two weeks to paint these pictures and he received all of these submissions, all of these paintings that just flooded the throne room. And the king looked through all of these things, he looked through all of these pictures and he narrowed it down to two paintings. The first painting that he narrowed it down to was beautiful, one of the greatest artists in all of his kingdom. And the painting was of a beautiful mountain scene Snow-capped mountains, you could see the greenery running down the sides, a nice little river running through, birds flying in the sky, the sun was shining, it was partly cloudy, the water was completely calm in this painting. It's beautiful. The second painting was kind of the opposite. And everybody in his kingdom, as they looked at that first painting of just that beautiful, peaceful scene, they said, that's going to be the one that the king picks as his favorite that he'll hang up in the throne room, a picture of peace and contentment. But in the midst of having this one painting, there was this other painting that the king brought out. And this picture was a little bit different. Because in this picture, there was still a mountain range in the background, snow-capped mountains, but there were dark clouds covering the entire thing. Dark clouds covering, you could see the bolts of lightning. It was said that when you looked at the painting, you could almost hear the thunder in the background. The water was not peaceful and calm. In fact, in this painting, the water was actually really choppy and rough. You could see that the trees that were on the land, they were almost bent over sideways because the wind was howling so much. But what made this painting significant was a little detail that most people missed. Because in the midst of those rushing waves, in the midst of those mountains and the water crashing down all around them, on one mountain there was a waterfall and the water crashed below. And you could see very faintly behind that waterfall a little crevice in the rock. And in that crevice was a little bird sitting on a nest. And everybody looked at the two paintings and said, the king has to pick the peaceful painting. And the king stood up in front of his kingdom and he held up this chaotic painting and he said, this is a picture of peace and contentment. Of course, the whole kingdom was baffled. How could that be? And the king said this, I loved this. He said, in the midst of this chaos this bird found a resting place. The water crashing down around him, the wind blowing all over the place, the thunder and lightning crackling in the sky. But this verse found a crevice in the rock. And this bird right here in this painting is at complete peace. That's contentment, friends. Contentment doesn't say that circumstances were just going to be still and calm for us. They won't. Turn on the news, right? Contentment says I'm going to anchor myself to Jesus. In the midst of everything spiraling around me, I will stay anchored to Jesus. So here's the application. What if we lived different this week? What if we lived different? What if in the midst of the media and the news and your Facebook and your Twitter and the newspaper rattling so much off to you, rather than us being rattled by chaos, what if we fixed ourselves to the sovereign Savior this week? What if we showed a trembling world, an unshakable church this week? Friends, what if we modeled stability in a shaking world? How do we do it? We live completely satisfied trusting in Jesus because he's good, therefore I can be content. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this morning, for the privilege we've had to be in your word. God, I pray that you would take the truths that we've explored today, God, and that you would just dive them down into our heart, Lord. It wouldn't be something that just sets on the surface of our heart and is just snatched away when we leave the, the church today. But God, it's something that takes root in our spirits. God, do a special work in our hearts today. God, would you mobilize us towards mission this week, Lord. In a trembling world, may we be an unshakable church. We love you, Jesus. We thank you so much for today. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.